one of the one of the shows that I remember my mom watching was a game show called Let's Make a Deal. Some of you remember I think they did a reboot of it or something. I don't know anything about that one. I just remember the the, the old one with Monty Hall, right? And Carol Merrill. Carol Merrill was this lady who stood in front of three doors, and the contestants were um, uh, challenged to pick a door that had a prize behind it, right? But they didn't know what was behind each door. And so it might be like a new car or some exotic vacation, or it might be an old cow that doesn't give milk anymore, right? They didn't know when when they chose uh, which door they wanted. The, the six verses that we're going to consider this morning basically present us with, with two doors, two choices. And, and unlike, let's, let's make a deal, James actually tells us what's behind those two doors. And he tells us that one of those leads to life and one of those leads to death. And so as we, get, we begin this morning... Uh, I mean, really seriously, I want to I ask you to be, begin listening very carefully to what James has to say. Um, I want to ask you to listen honestly, uh, that, that through what he says, you will see the truth about yourself. And, um, and I think also to ask you to listen courageously. Um, because I think that, that every one of us are probably going to need to make changes, corrections, based on what James will say to us this morning. So um, before we jump into this, we better pray, I think. Lord, as we come to your word today, I ask that, that you would expose who we really are. I ask for your kindness and mercy as you do that. I ask that you would give us ears to hear what you have to say and then the courage to do what needs to be done. Um, And so we invite you this morning, uh, stronger than that, Lord, really beg you uh, to speak to us and to make us into the people you desire us to be. And we pray that in Jesus' name, amen. So uh, I'll invite you to turn in your Bibles to James chapter 1. That's uh, on page 975 of the Bibles that the ushers uh, handed out. Last week, if you were with us, uh, you may remember that we left off at verse 8. We're going to loop back around to verses 9 through 12 in a a few weeks when we're looking at another passage that's that's related to that section of James. So this morning we're going to begin at verse 13 of James 1, where James says, When you are tempted, no one should say, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself tempts no one. It's kind of an interesting place to start, isn't it? Uh, Answering a question about whether God tempts people to sin or not. But I wonder if maybe James starts here because um, uh, all of us, humanity, from our very first parents down to everyone in this room, 
it seems we all have a need to blame someone else, right? Um, the very first sinners in history of, of humanity, remember who they blamed? They blamed God. God, God came to them uh, in, in Genesis 3, and, and he asked them, uh, why did you do this? Why did you disobey? And just classic, you know, Adam says, it was this woman that you gave me. <laughs> right? So he, he points to Eve, and then he points it right back to God. This tendency to blame others is, is played out in the musical Into the Woods. I don't know if any of you have, have seen that musical. It's a, it's a story where... Uh, several of the Grimm's fairy tale characters come together all in one story. And as their happily ever after worlds are falling apart, they, they begin to blame one another. It's a, it's a fascinating song that goes by so quickly. Uh, it's called Your Fault. It wasn't my fault, it was your fault. And, and the song just goes on with everyone blaming each other. Uh, I've talked to people in prison who insist that it is not their fault that they committed their particular crime. They're not claiming innocence. They acknowledge that they did the crime, but it's not their fault. How do they get there? Uh, One guy straight up told me that he asked God to take those evil thoughts away, and since God didn't do that, and they followed through with their crime, it's God's fault. Um, I've sat with people in my office who defend sinful behavior, not criminal behavior, but definitely sinful behavior, because they say, this is how God made me. This is just how God made me. Well, that, that may be, but he, he didn't intend for you to stay that way, Right? And I do the same thing, right? I want somehow to lessen my own culpability for my sinful choices. We, we all do it. But it doesn't make it okay. James says here in this verse, don't blame God for tempting you. God can't be tempted and he never tempts anyone. So, so stop it, right? And not only does James tell us not to blame God, he He jumps over all of the other possibilities and gets right to the source of our temptation to sin. Verse 14, he says, But each person is tempted when they are drawn away and enticed by their own evil desires. See, James goes right to the heart of the matter and says it's a matter of the heart. Our hearts, my heart. Your heart. He doesn't allow, there's no room in, what, in this passage in James uh, for that popular catchphrase from the 70s, the devil made me do it. If you remember Flip Wilson's show. Now, of course, we, we know that, that Satan plays a part in the process of temptation. Uh, again, Genesis 3 tells us about Eve's conversation with him. Uh, about the forbidden fruit of the tree. Uh, 
Uh, We can see in the New Testament that Satan plays a part in the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. But but when it comes down to uh, giving in to temptation, James wants to make it crystal clear that the responsibility for that lies in our court. My heart, your heart. Uh, James is, is talking about each and every person's own evil desires. And, and I'm sure he got some of this from his half-brother Jesus, who talked about this in the Sermon on the Mount. Mark 7, he said, It's what comes from inside that defiles you. For from within, out of a person's heart, come Evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, wickedness, deceit, lustful desires, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All of these vile things, Jesus says, come from within. They are what defile you. Let's talk about these desires for just a moment. Um, Not all desires are evil ones, okay? God has placed in us good desires, but we live in a fallen world, right? And so even though not all of our desires are evil, um, they all come with the capacity for evil. What do I mean? Um, Our desire for food has the the capacity for gluttony, right? Right? The desire for food is not a bad thing. Gluttony is. Um, The desire to be known and and loved uh, can be, you know, uh, it can go sideways on us. And it has the capacity for attention-seeking, for thinking more highly of myself than I ought. the, the desire for sexual f- fulfillment within marriage, we know this, it, it has the capacity for fornication outside the bonds of ma- marriage, whether, whether in our thoughts or what we view or actual sex with someone who is not our spouse. So each desire may not be evil, but because we live in this fallen world, all of them have this potential capacity for evil. Uh, The Apostle John summarized these evil desires as the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And James says to us in this passage that each and every one of us is susceptible to those evil desires. But James is is interested in this process, and he's going to talk us through this Uh, this process by which we get from evil desire to the act of sinning. And it it begins, he says, with temptation. So what is temptation? Let's make sure we understand what that is. Temptation is simply an enticement to sin and evil. And, And sin and evil are corruptions of the good gifts that God has given his children. Sin pretends to be the good thing that God created, but it isn't that thing, right? We'll get to that part in a moment here. But it's, it's important, I think, to understand that temptation in and of itself isn't sin. It's the giving in to temptation that brings us into sin. 
One place in the Bible that we see this, I think maybe most clearly, is in Hebrews 4.15, which tells us that Jesus was tempted in every way that we are. And yet, he never sinned. Jesus was tempted, but never sinned. So, it stands to reason, temptation cannot be a sin. But just because temptation isn't a sin doesn't mean it's not important. It might be helpful to think of temptation as a warning light on the, on the dashboard of your life. When the light goes on, it signals that we're in danger here of sinning. If you ignore the, the oil light that comes on on your dashboard, you're in danger of seizing up your engine, right? We know this, or, or most of us know this. Or, or maybe it's helpful to think of it as a, a traffic sign that says, bridge out ahead. Nothing wrong with seeing that sign, right? In fact, it's helpful. It, it, it's there to help us. But if you ignore the sign and keep on going, you could end up at the bottom of a canyon. Uh, saw recently on the news, there's, there's, a, there's a road... Uh, near Pacific City that washed out a few months ago. They've got signs. We were just there on our vacation. Barricades, signs, road is washed out, and some numbskull, well, actually, his first numbskull act was he stole a car, and then he, went around, he moved the barricades, went around the barricades, and went flying toward Pacific City, and ended up in a rollover crash. He ignored the warning sign. Blue right on past it. James wants us to understand this morning the anatomy of how we get into sin. And he starts with temptation and then he begins to unpack it. And he does this by using a metaphor from, from fishing to help us picture this. That's why I'm wearing this shirt this morning. Some of you have said, kind of casual for a Sunday morning, isn't it? Well, it's one of my fishing shirts, so we're talking about fishing this morning, so I thought I'd wear it. James says that we are lured away, really is what the the word means, enticed uh, by our own evil desires. Um, I've already said it, but most of you know that I I love fishing. I especially love uh, fly fishing. Um, If you're a, a fly fisher, you know that in... Uh, mid to late May, sometimes into that first week of June, on the Deschutes River, there's a, there's a hatch of bugs uh, called the, the salmon fly hatch or the stone fly hatch. And, and the red side trout in the Deschutes River gorge themselves on these bugs. Uh, they they kind of get trapped in the surface film of the river and... and they come up and, and slurp them. It's, it's so, so fun to, to see that happen. Fly fishers come literally from all around the world to fish this hatch that only lasts a few weeks. Um, now, the, the picture on the left uh, is the actual bug, the salmon fly or, or stone fly. Uh, the picture on the right is an imitation of that bug that we use to entice the trout to take the hook. And, and this particular one uh, is called the Clark's 
Stonefly. It was, it was created, invented, patented by our own Lee Clark. Some of you know Lee. Um, I've, got, I've got one of the actual ones right here that Lee tied up for me. Um, you can't see it from where you are, but it's a, it's a beautiful fly. Um, it really is. It's, it's gorgeous. It's a famous fly because it's so effective at attracting these, these trout. Now, as you look at these pictures, most of you might say, that looks nothing like the real buck. Any, anyone think that? It not look anything like that, right? It looks nothing like the real thing. And, and you're right. To us, it, it really doesn't. But there's something about this fly that, that when it's presented right on the river, makes a trout at, at the bottom of the river go, like all googly-eyed and like, wow, that looks so good, right? In fact, that looks better than the real bugs that are floating by. I, I bet if I ate that bug, it would taste better. It would satisfy me in ways that no real salmon fly could, right? And, and so lured away from the, the safety of the rocks at the bottom of the river, enticed by the shiny tinsel wrapped around the shank of a hook, the oversized fluffy hackle, the fish comes up takes the fly, and bang, he's hooked. Now, you probably all know fishermen are liars, right? (laughs) We are. Uh, Usually we we talk about that in terms of the the size of the fish or maybe the number of fish that that we catch. Uh, But fishermen lie to the fish as well. You know, I, I've been fishing with Danny Logan many times, and not once, not once has he gone down to the river with a megaphone and announced to the fish, Hey fish, Danny Logan here. Just so you know, I'm about to throw a lure out there. I'm going to let it set just a couple of feet off the bottom of the river. It's got this really cool spinny thing. Isn't that cool? Just below that, there's, there's this tasty coon shrimp. It's all red and it's been soaked in special juice. Man, does it taste good. Now fish, in the spirit of transparency, I, I need to let you know that when you bite into that, there is a hook and it will get lodged in your jaw and it's going to hurt like heck. But I don't want you to worry, okay? Because I'm going to reel you in and when I get you up on the shore, I'm going to club you on the head to stun you and then I'm going to rip your gills out so you'll bleed out real quick.
That would be the honest thing to do, Danny. Right? But fishermen are liars. Here's the thing. So are our evil desires. Our evil desires say, boy, that looks good. I bet that would satisfy me more than any good desire that God has placed in me. And if you and I ignore the warning light that says we're being tempted by an imitation of the real thing, not the real thing, an imitation of the real thing, a cheap imitation of the real thing, If we don't pay attention to that warning light, we'll take the bait, bite the hook, and be dragged away. Uh, James continues describing this process by switching metaphors in verse 15. He says, Then after that evil desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. James switches here to a metaphor about human reproduction. He talks about evil desire being planted in the, in the womb, if you will, of our hearts. Another way we might think of this is setting up camp in our hearts, becoming at home in our hearts. When we entertain the thought of this evil desire, when we play around in our minds with what it would look like or, or feel like or, or be like to, to have that thing that we're lusting for. It sets up camp. It, it is conceived. And just like an embryo that, that grows into a baby and eventually is born, James says that that evil desire grows and gives birth to sin. And once that child called sin is born, it grows up and reproduces and gives birth to death. Death. There's a process in play here. And and, and once that process has begun, it is very, very difficult to turn it around. That's why it's so important to pay attention to the temptation light on the dashboard of your life. Why it's, it's so important what we do with our thoughts. And, of course, we're used to talking about this in the, in the realm of sexual sins, and it definitely pertains to that. But this is the way, really, of all sin. It's the way of greed. i got to have that. i got to have more. Or, or power. Or, or how we speak about others. Or, or anything that goes against how God has designed his people to live. It's a, it's a progression. And the progression, as, as James tells us, leads to death. That's where it's heading. And I want to add here, maybe, maybe you're just exploring the truth about Jesus and, and God. Um, but, but this right here is why God hates sin. Sometimes people paint a picture of God that he's this cosmic killjoy that is like holding out on us, right? All the good stuff, he says, no, don't, don't do that. 
That's not who God is. God hates sin because it kills people. It destroys the people that he loves. That's why he hates sin. So what do we, what do, we do if we've started down that path of evil desires that lead to sin, that then lead to death? I mean, it's a progression. Is, is there no way of turning that around? I want to say to you this morning, whoever you are, wherever you are, there's always a way out. Always a way out. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, the temptations in your life are no different from what others experience. And God is faithful. He will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. When you are tempted, he will show you a way out so that you can endure. I don't know all of you well enough to know what the stuff is you're dealing with. You, you might be up to your eyeballs in the sin of crushing debt. There's a way out. You think there's not a way out. There's a way out. You, you might realize that you're using some substance to numb the pain of life, not, not physical pain, emotional pain of life. There's a way out. You might be in an inappropriate relationship. Maybe, maybe it hasn't gone to a sexual affair, but you've become too familiar, too intimate. There's a way out. Some of you guys, and, and maybe some of you women, I don't know, might be using pornography as a, as a way to escape from reality. Friends, you're on a deadly path if you're doing that. It's not harmless. It doesn't matter if all guys do it. You're headed for a cliff. But there's a way out. There's a way out. Here's the thing, though. The, the longer you go down the path of evil desire, what, whatever that is, the longer you go down that path, the harder the way out is. So, so you need to understand that. It's only going to get harder to get out of this mess that you're in. Um, someone has illustrated it this way. Early on in that path, sorry, I'm probably going to be off camera here for you at home. Early on in that path, right, the, the temptation warning light goes on, right? You're, you're headed down this this path. And over here is this huge, I don't know, garage size. Maybe it's a, a huge shop. Maybe it's an airplane hangar. I don't know, but it's really big. And God says, here's your way out. Well, that's easy, right? Just walk through that door. But you get a little further down that path and the, the door gets smaller. It might be like a normal door that, that we walk through. Pretty easy to get through. Not as big as the great big garage door, but I can still get through it. If I go a little further down that path, the door gets smaller. The way out gets smaller. Now it's maybe like one of our um, uh, crawl space doors up in our attic or underneath your house. 
I mean, you're going to have to do some contortion probably to get through that. But you can get out. There's a way out. God always provides a way out. Some of us, though, we, we, we keep on going. We blow past the garage door and the regular size door and the crawl space door. And now we're, now we're like, the way out is like a, a, a doggy door, right? It, I mean, it's, it's hard to get through that. It's going to hurt. It's going to leave a mark. But there's a way out. The Bible says there's always a way out. I've walked past that garage door and the regular door and the crawl space door. It gets harder and harder. And the truth is, with, with any of our sin, it never just affects us, it affects other people. And so the further down you go, the more people are going to be hurt. More in number and more in depth. Um, some of you this morning are way too far down that path of evil desire. And I want to say this morning, take the way out. Do it. Do it today. Well, in verse 16, James uses his most direct, it's, it's not graphic, but it's his most direct and emphatic language. So after talking about fish being lured into biting a hook, James says, Do not be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Um, it's easy to see how verse 16 could be a conclusion to verses 13 through 15. He's, he's saying, don't take the bait, don't bite the hook, don't let sin's deception convince you to go that way. And, and that's certainly part of what James is saying here, but I think he's saying more. I, I really do. As I've, if I, as I've sat with this passage, I think there's more that he's saying. See, verse 16 sits at sort of the center of this passage. It's sort of, sort of a balance point uh, between these two ways. And so in 13 through 15, he, he's talked about the, the way that leads to death, and now James will show us the way of life. Verse 17, he says, Every good and perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. By his own choice, he gave us birth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So in contrast to the, the evil desires that make us vulnerable to sin's deception, James here presents the, the real thing. This isn't a fishing lure, right? This is the the real thing. And what is that real thing? The goodness of God and the gifts that he gives us. See, I think James wants us to recognize the real thing so we won't be so susceptible to the fake thing, the the fishing lure with the hook in it. Uh, in, In these 
two verses, 17 and 18, James draws from a Jewish prayer that was prayed every morning, still is by devout Jews, before reciting the Shema, which is that command that calls us to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? And this prayer right before reciting the Shema reminds Jewish people that God is the creator and that he is the father of lights and that he is good. He's the father of all that is good. From those heavenly lights down to the daily sustenance of his creation with his good gifts. And these good gifts, James says, are continually coming down from God. They're all around us. And again, James makes this contrast. So unlike the double-minded person that we talked about last week, who was blown around on the ocean like waves of the sea, God's not like that. God doesn't waver. There's no shifting shadows with him. He's unchanging. He's faithful. He's always good. And as we we go on, we see that the greatest of all God's good gifts is his gift of salvation. And here James returns to that metaphor of Uh, that he's already used about human reproduction. So contrasting sin that gives birth to death, James reminds us that we have been given birth. God has chosen to give us birth into eternal life. And, And James uses a word here when he says that it was God's own choice to give us birth. It, it means, it's interesting, it means strong desire. It was God's strong desire to give us birth, to give us into uh, new life. And so James is contrasting, again, the evil desires of humans that lead them into sin and death with God's strong desire, which brings life. Of course, we know the source of that life uh, James says is the word of truth. This, this phrase, word of truth, is used five times in the New Testament. All five of those, when they use that phrase, word of truth, they, they describe it as the gospel message about Jesus. So it's, it's through faith in Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension that we are given birth into God's family. And James ends verse 18 by saying that we become a kind of first fruits of all of his creatures. Um, He's saying that that we become sort of a sample of what will one day be the whole people of God throughout history in the new heavens and new earth. He does a bunch of contrasting here. Here's, Here's, I want to try and say it more plainly. Here's what I think James is doing. Verse 16 is a Y in the road. There's a sign pointing one way that leads to life. There's a sign pointing the other way that leads to death. And the way that that, that leads to life is is lined with God's good and, and perfect gifts, hundreds of thousands of them. And the greatest gift of all is the gift of his salvation. 
Over here, the way that leads to death is lined with things that are cheap imitations of the good gifts of God. Some of them are super shiny and sparkly. They look really good. They promise to be better than the gifts God offers. But James wants us to know that hidden within them is a deadly hook that will drag us away and and take us to death. So in verse 16, James is saying, don't be deceived. Don't fall for it. You see? Don't fall for this. You might be here this morning and thinking, God's not really that good. And I want to say to you this morning, that's a lie. It's a deception. Don't believe it. As hard as that may be for you. You might be thinking this morning that this sparkly lure will bring you more satisfaction than the good gifts God offers. It's a lie. It's a deception. James says, don't be deceived. Don't do it. I really think what James is doing here is calling us to recognize the goodness of God and the gifts he gives. And I think James believes that if we will really understand how good God is, we won't fall for the deception of the fishing lure. I don't care what the imitation of God's good gift is. It will never satisfy you for the long term. It won't. It can't. It might feel good for a moment before you realize the hook's in there. But it never will satisfy the deep longings of your heart. Only God can do that. So in the midst of our temptations, and we all have them, all of us, okay? When we're so prone to be dragged away and enticed by evil desires, whatever those might be, what do we do? Well, we got to remember that God is good. He's the father of lights who gives good gifts. Tony Marita says, he makes these three points about God's goodness from this passage. I'll put them up on the screen. He reminds us that God's goodness is unchanging. God is perpetually, constantly, consistently good. Psalm 119 says he is good and everything he does is good. In today's vernacular, we say God is good when? It's easy to say. Much harder to really believe. Secondly, Marita says God's goodness is undeserved. God chose to give us birth through the word of truth, the gospel about Jesus. We're going to see a lot about works in James's letter, but the foundation for all of it is undeserved grace. That's where it all starts. Thirdly, God's goodness is unending. Why does he say that? We are the first fruits of his creatures. This is a a foretaste, as I said, a sample of what is to come. And so what God has done in our lives to change our hearts by his goodness is only a preview of the day 
that will come when he will make all things new in all of creation. That's where I set my hope when everything seems like it's going south. So friends, if we, if we lose sight of God's goodness, if we think for a moment that he's holding out on us, see, that's what the serpent did with Eve in the garden. God's holding out on you. <laughs> did he really say that? If we think that God is holding out on us, we're likely to go after the cheap imitation that's floating by. But if we do, we're going to bite that hook and be dragged away. We're going to see that, that that evil desire gives birth to sin and that sin gives birth to death. It's just the way it works. I'm going to close with this. I want to put to you a question this morning that Moses asked Israel. He said, now listen. Today I'm giving you a choice between life and death, between prosperity and disaster. For I command you this day to love the Lord your God and keep his commands, decrees, and regulations by walking in his way. If you do this, you will live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land you are about to enter and occupy. But if your heart turns away and you refuse to listen, and if you are drawn away to serve and worship other gods, then I warn you now that you will certainly be destroyed. You will not live a long, good life in the land you are crossing the Jordan to occupy. So today I have given you the choice between life and death, between blessings and curses. And now I call on heaven and earth to witness the choice you make. I imagine Moses saying this next, these next words with tears running down his face. Oh, that you would choose life. Oh, that you would choose life so that you and your descendants might live. I put the same question to you today. Will you decide to choose life? Will you open your eyes to the goodness of God and the good gifts he gives, especially if the only one you're able to see is his gift of eternal life? Will you choose that or, and keep in mind, you can't do both. Choose life or death. Will you continue to chase after the cheap imitations of God's goodness that ultimately lead us to death? That's the question. Let's pray. So as we go to prayer, um, I just got to pause here and ask you to consider if there is some sin that you are playing with today that needs to be renounced. This moment right now is one of those doors we talked about earlier. This is God saying to you, I am offering you a way out. Now is not the time for you to say, let me think about it. Now is the time for you to say, God, 
I'm done with it. Help me get back on track. I want life. This is killing me. I want life. Some of you here this morning may be inclined to think of the really bad sins that other people do. You're in that compare game. And you're still making excuses for your particular sin. I'm not as bad as so-and-so. Or maybe you're excusing your behaviors because God just made you that way. See, God doesn't make those distinctions when it comes to sin. Greed, lying, envy, slander, pride are lumped right in there with murder and adultery. So today we decide to stop making excuses. Lord, uh, please continue to show us your goodness. Help us to recognize the good things, the true things that come from you, the things that lead to life. And may we recognize the cheap imitations of your good gifts so we don't end up with a hook in our mouths. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.